This podcast is brought to you by eGauge Systems, advanced, affordable, and reliable energy monitoring. The eGauge is a data logger, web server, and energy meter in one device. With revenue grade accuracy, eGauge can be used to optimize efficiency and for solar monitoring and submetering. Learn more at eGauge.net. For the week of August 7th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, Green Tech Media's senior editor in Washington, D.C. On this week's show, we'll dissect some interesting and counterintuitive data on energy consumption, discuss Arizona Public Service's new plan to own rooftop solar, and look at the resurgence of property-assessed clean energy programs. Here with me every step of the way are my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine is a principal at the Clean Tech Public Policy Consultancy, 38 North Solutions, here in Washington. What is up in your world, Catherine, this week? Well, Congress left town at the end of last week, so it's eerily quiet here. So does that mean like you have pizza parties and watch nothing but YouTube during your workday? It means I actually get to do work. <laughs> <laughs> what, following Congress isn't work? It is. It is. And in fact, I was over there today meeting with a with a legislative director for a member of Congress. And it was great because we actually got to sit in the member's office and, you know, really chat intent, you know, about some intense stuff. So it was good. Hmm. Well, we've got Jigger Shaw with us as well. He is the founder of Sun Edison and the author of Creating Climate Wealth. He's back at his home base of New York City this week. Hey, Jigger, I presume you're in New York. I am in New York. It's good to be back in New York. Things are great. You know, the summer has been extraordinarily mild, and so it's been fun. All right, well, we've got a special guest this week. He is coming to us from Austin, Texas. I don't know if he's uh, keeping it weird like they do there in Austin, but I know he, I know he's trying to keep it pretty efficient. It's Brewster McCracken, the CEO of Pecan Street Incorporated, a smart grid testing and research organization. Brewster, thanks for joining the gang. Before we go any further, I need to ask you the most important question of the day. Do you say pecan or pecan? Yeah, we say pecan, and we didn't realize that was a regional pronunciation until we started going around the country a few years ago and found that there's one of those words that is not pronounced pecan in many places, and a lot of folks are kind of uncertain how to pronounce it. <laughs> All right, now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's get to the really hard questions. Do you say wind turbine or turbine? No, I'm just kidding. All right, so how, <laughs> how are things there in Austin? We're actually having a mild summer here, too. We, uh, you know, we've uh, only had a few hundred-degree days, and uh, for us, that's a, that's a huge victory. <laughs> well, Brewster is here to talk about data and about what Pecan Street has found as it surveyed different smart grid projects and consumer energy use, and some of the, some of the findings may surprise you. After we let Brewster on his way, we'll talk about Arizona Public Service's surprising plan to develop and manage 20 megawatts of rooftop solar systems. And then we'll talk about PACE financing, which is back from the dead. Well, some may argue that it was never dead at all. We will, of course, bookend the show by telling you something you may not know. In 2008, the city of Austin wanted to make itself energy smart. So it brought together economic development organizations, environmental groups, and energy companies to research how to get consumers more aware of their energy use, localize the energy system, and change the way utilities do business. In 2009, as the consortium prepared to release their recommendations, the founding members created the Pecan Street Project to actually execute that vision. Since then, the organization has helped deploy smart grid projects and developed a research arm to analyze their findings. So I want to make a big disclosure here before we get going. Pecan Street uh, did purchase thousands of meters from eGauge, which is our podcast sponsor, for their energy monitoring efforts. So there's an affiliation there, and I wanted to disclose that to our listeners. So uh, back to the findings. Over the last year, Pecan Street has released a lot of the data it's gathered, both uh, some of the raw information and its own analysis. And we're going to talk about some of those more interesting tidbits today. We've got a lot of people in the solar industry who listen to this show, so I want to start with that. We all know that solar panels should face south to maximize energy production, but uh, last fall, your research arm showed that west-facing panels could actually be more valuable, not because they produce more power over time, but because they produce 
uh, nearly 50% more power during peak times later in the day. And when we reported on this, it was like one of our top read articles of the year. So walk us through that conclusion. How did you find it and what are the implications? We had in 2010, Stephen, set out to figure out what was the best value proposition for rooftop solar panels. And so through that, we started looking at what if the solar panels were oriented to the West? Would they uh, generate more electricity at the time people were home and thereby uh, put less of that extra electricity back onto the uh, distribution system? Because utilities, for the most part, aren't really well positioned to, to either take advantage or even manage that kind of sporadic extra electricity that comes from rooftop solar panels. We offered a research incentive for folks to put west-facing panels on their homes. And as we sorted through the data uh, over a few you know, quarters, uh, it, we were very surprised to see uh, not only was our original hypothesis confirmed that more of the electricity produced by the west-facing panels was actually used inside of the home, but also that actually during those peak demand hours in the summer, that the west-facing panels were generating a lot more electricity than the south-facing panels. And what we're looking at is, you know, what are the things that are the universals and what are the things that are really kind of region-specific? So obviously things like air conditioning are going to be a lot more of a, of a challenge uh, to manage for Texas or Arizona than for coastal California. But understanding on the solar panel front uh, how the performance works differently in different regions is a, a big next step for us just because we 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 found some surprising things. Jigger, what was your reaction to that? Um same same reaction I always have. I mean, I knew about the west stuff, but honestly, the bigger reaction is Brewster did did Austin Energy make any changes to the way in which they, you know, incentivize solar? Did anybody? And the answer is probably well, no because the utilities are worthless. <laughs> <laughs> we actually had to get uh, approval from Austin Energy because we were relying in addition to the research incentives we were paying, we were relying on uh, them uh, to also offer their normal solar panel incentives for west-facing systems, which they did not do before, and they now do that. Uh, so they'll give you the free. They'll give you the full incentive, even if you decide to go west-facing. That's right. But what's the point? I mean, the, the the thing that bugs me the most is when data like this comes out, the utility should actually be begging you to make it west-facing because it's yeah. better for their system. But they're not doing that. They're saying if you're so enlightened and you've read Pecan Street's work, then and you want to do West Facing, we won't penalize you for doing it on the West Side. On top of that, right, utilities really benefit a lot more in our part of the world, where I'm calling from, uh, from West Facing solar panels because their whole system challenge is managing summer peak. And that is when the West Facing panels on tilted roofs uh, are performing like gangbusters, and they're performing later in the afternoon when people are actually home. So I want to talk about peak demand management, too, because you've got some interesting findings there. And in Texas, you found that basically 80% of discretionary energy use was devoted to the air conditioner. And that can account for like 70% of the seasonal variability that utilities face. So AC obviously should be a, a central focus for utilities, if not the only focus. Uh, what are some of the more insightful findings in that area in terms of AC use and appliances? Well, uh, first off, you, you, you nailed it, Stephen. The, the overwhelming amount of summer electric use that goes to air conditioning, particularly in peak demand hours, is such that there's really not even a, a something that shows up on the radar screen as a regular second. Uh, it, it's just little stuff. So the idea that peak demand management can extend beyond the air conditioner in the in the sunbelt is uh, the data doesn't support that uh, but the uh but the question then is well what do you what do you do that it has the biggest impact on air conditioning use so uh there are a range of of suggestions or programs out there everything from you know rebates for efficient air conditioning systems and attic insulation to time of use pricing to uh you know, uh, demand response programs. What we're seeing in our data is that the two most effective tools are a simple text message uh, sent, you know, for those 15 some odd days of peak demand periods, critical peak periods. But the most effective one appears to be in a more efficient air conditioning system. That overwhelms behavior. 
this is just an observation we made. There's a, a lot more research that has to be done, but but what it really does suggest is the whole green building movement is uh, uh, about it focuses on the thermal efficiency of buildings. That 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 is moving the needle more than anything we see. Yeah, I love the consumer engagement piece, which is like consumers have a pretty short attention span and they lose interest really quickly in all this data that they're getting. You did find that customers monitoring their data really do become less engaged over time, though. How do you keep people engaged? Um, You know, there are a lot of companies out there that have found a way to do this. And as you described, doing it through text messages, through emails, through web dashboards. But you have found some drop off in consumer awareness or they're caring to monitor their energy use. What are the best ways to keep that up? You know, for starters, I think that it's just an inherent challenge to get people to stay engaged with anything that they just want to work. So, uh, you know, you think you take things like, uh, let's take solar panels. That doesn't require conscious consumer engagement. Those things are just producing benefits for uh, their owners when the sun is out. And so the uh, attic insulation is the ultimate non-engagement, highly effective tool because it just keeps your house comfortable and you don't have to think about it. And, and so anything that requires people to start interacting and becoming engaged with technology, you're going to run into the flashing VCR clock syndrome, it appears. But there are, there are that doesn't mean it's hopeless. So, you know, you take like the Nest thermostat, which we've deployed about 300 of, and those, uh, you know, those have a feature that they, where they can, they have a default setting where they can automatically detect if you're not home and then raise the temperature if you're not home. Well, that, that is something that people can engage with, but if they don't engage with it, it's still, it still has its value proposition. But doesn't that mean you really need a sort of Mark Zuckerberg-like approach to this, where you get a bunch of people to put Nest thermostats and then you sort of opt them in you know, automatically um, into managing it remotely, and then if they really complain heavily, you give them some obscure button to opt out on? <laughs> it's like the Apple iTunes agreement, too. Exactly. You know, what you do see is, for example, what Nest did with their rush hour uh, program, I think last year, you got, you got $85 back if you, with certain utilities, if you'd sign up where the default setting was that they could do demand response. So, and it's, uh, if you can somehow on the front end, set it up by hook or by crook where there's the default setting is some sort of management if the user does not engage, that that appear that would seem to be uh, a, a have a greater possibility of success. Hmm. Well, there's this inherent tension here in what we're talking about. So, Pecan Street was set up to help deploy technology, test technology, and figure out how it's having an impact. And yet, what you're saying is some of the high technology scenarios may not be the best outside of you know truly automated systems. Is there a conflict there for you in terms of what you? expect to get out of Pecan Street and what you expected to find? Well, no, because we're not an advocacy organization. We're a research institute. Right. So uh, the, we have to follow the information. We we became the operators of the world's largest research database on customer energy use because when we were starting to map out what we were going to test, we asked, well, how do we know what the baseline is? How do we know if this is actually making a difference? Let's go find some data on how people are using electricity down to the appliance level. And we couldn't find any. We said, well, let's go get some devices and install them ourselves. And we found that the market was really not there at the time yet either. So we ended up having to try to solve a problem for ourselves, which was measuring appliance level data, something that meters just aren't able to do or aren't, aren't, aren't configured to do. And, and, the, and so that was, we, by trying to solve a problem for ourselves, that, that, that really kind of morphed us into this, more research-focused institute that follows the data as opposed to any sort of advocacy. Yeah. So one of the conclusions out of your work seems to be that this spike that everyone's afraid of with electric vehicles doesn't really show up, that enough people work from home and plug in at random times that it's sort of a muted impact on electrical infrastructure. Is that right? And you find that that they respond to time of use rates well, uh, better than other customers. Right. Those were two 
very surprising findings, particularly the first one about when people charge. So, you know, all of the, all of the models of behavior out there for electric vehicles prior to what we did and then in the last month or so, O-Power's come out with a similar finding, uh, is that the, fi- the, the assumption before was that everybody would get home at five and charge their car for three hours, uh, forgetting that we no longer live in the 1950s. But uh, it made intuitive sense once we saw the data is that, you know, people are charging all over the place. You know, they, sometimes they get home early to meet a, a repair person or they work from home. Sometimes they have soccer practice with their kids after work uh, or they go out to dinner on a Thursday night. And so people are charging at all these different times. And so it, the uh, profile of electric vehicle charging is a lot more like a clothes dryer than it is a, uh, an air conditioning system because they don't all come on at the same time. And if they did, it'd be a big problem at even low levels. But because they don't come on at the same time, that means they are the new cash cow for utilities when they're present in somebody's home. That's right. And not only are they not overloading the distribution system, but they are using 60% roughly more electricity. That's what Opower found. These EV customers are using about 60% more electricity than the average consumer. So there is a sweet spot here for utilities. Yeah, we, we found about 25%, but that's because we their, their pool was heavily skewed to non-air conditioning regions. And ours was skewed to air conditioning regions. Uh, either way, people are buying 200 kilowatt hours plus extra electricity a year. That's basically new money under the couch cushion for utilities, because it's these are easy to serve load and they're and they are generating a lot of revenue. So my experience with utility companies in general is that they don't actually care about all this data. They sort of say they care. But ultimately, what they're really focused on is this macro planning model, where they're thinking about how much net generation do we have, what's our peaks, what are the different opportunities we have to actually manage the peaks. And when you talk about innovation and individual customers and the technologies that they want to integrate, they'll sort of nerd out on you when, when you sort of have the conversation. But there's really no impact that I've seen in the way that they regulate or the way they run their system. Have you guys seen otherwise? I, I think Jigger that that's a, a a pretty astute observation. You know, conceptually, utilities care about about this data, but but in practice, they're really focused on well, what's confronting me today and over the next couple of years, and so make meaning they're like everybody else, right? But uh, but what that does mean is that there is a vulnerability utilities face uh, from disruptive innovations. So an electric car is not a disruptive innovation. It fits within their delivery model, and it generates lots of extra revenue. It's a sustaining innovation. But rooftop solar panels and solar panels with battery systems, uh, which we're starting to see some real movement on, as you all know, in California, those are disruptive. And in, in new generations of gas, natural gas turbines that could run, generate electricity 24-7 off of the natural gas utilities uh, service, that would also be disruptive. And, and so, you know, part of this is to see, well, what, what would be the impact of that? And if, if, the, if they want to be prepared, and, and many do, they usually want to be prepared once they see that a problem is arising. Well, and, one of the findings that you made was that the home area network devices with data in the cloud paired with the utility meters were losing so much data. So you weren't even able to use the utilities, it seems, would not be able to then use the data in as intelligent a way as you could potentially use it. It's a huge problem, Catherine. It, but this is more of an issue of, is this data useful for third-party applications rather than for utility outage and bill management? And, and the problem is the only way to make the data useful is you have to get a higher resolution of data. So you can do what we do with, as you mentioned, we use e-gauge systems. We're able to measure down to the appliance level every minute, in some cases every second. That's not something that utilities will ever need to do. But if you're going to use electricity use data to help people learn when they have to maintain their air conditioning system or whether they have uh, something odd going on in their home as revealed by intentional switches being turned on when they shouldn't be, but, you know, those kind of applications use energy data to provide insights for customers, but the, the meter can't provide it. So there needs to be a gateway device or some independent way to measure that electric use. 
And the gateway devices on the market, there's been some effort in places like Texas to say, okay, you can pair with a smart meter and, and download the data every seven seconds, uh, which actually would provide a, a very useful resolution of data for, for nice third-party services like home security and appliance maintenance recommendations. But the, uh, the gateway devices don't have any onboard data caching and the signal connection with Zigbee networks is in such a poor shape right now that that those kinds of systems are effectively useless. I don't know if I should be excited by this or cynical about it. <laughs> you know, uh, I think that the exciting stuff at the moment is going to, in, in electricity, is going to be kind of like what's happening in telecommunications. And that is distributed systems and big data are, are starting to uh, create some interesting opportunities. You know, if you take the case of when the cable grid was upgraded in the early 1990s to fiber optics, well, uh, what that enabled was competition with the postal service and with brick-and-mortar bookstores, not, not competition initially with cable companies. So what, what, what is going to use this big data and distributed energy how is that going to create new business opportunities? There's, there's this, there's actually some real movement, as you guys know, uh, toward something interesting happening. Couldn't agree more. If anyone wants to take a look at that data and try to figure out the business opportunity themselves, we will put a PDF to Brewster's presentation on our website. You're okay if we link to that, right, Brewster? Absolutely, Stephen. Great. Well, Brewster McCracken is the CEO of Pecan Street Incorporated. And he joined us from Austin, Texas. Brewster, this was great. Um, really fascinating presentation you had there and a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Catherine. And thanks, Jigger. It was great to catch up again, Brewster. Thanks. Now Thank go you. forth and do this in Missouri and Kansas. <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of data, let's turn to our sponsor, eGage Systems. eGage was, uh, as Brewster mentioned, the metering company that enabled a lot of that data acquisition in Austin. The eGage is a data logger, web server, and energy meter in one device. With eGage, you can see your data in real time, monitor up to 12 circuits, and view energy usage on a web interface with no ongoing fees. With revenue-grade accuracy, eGage can be used to optimize efficiency and for solar monitoring and submetering. For more information on the company's products, visit eGage.net. Let's take a trip from Austin, Texas to Arizona, where we saw some surprising solar news last week. After years of arguing that rooftop solar is damaging to its business model, Arizona Public Service now wants in on the action. The utility proposed a plan to install and own 20 megawatts of rooftop solar projects around the state, replacing plans for a 20 megawatt central station. If the plan is approved, APS will lease around 3,000 residential rooftops and pay participating customers $30 per month. The plan was lauded by local contractors, which will get to bid on the work, and it was slammed by national solar service providers like SolarCity and Sunrun, which see it as a way to shut out competitors. APS has historically been critical of solar, but now that they can rate base it, say these companies, all of a sudden, APS is for it. So what do we make of the sudden move? A few weeks ago, Jigger had a private meeting with APS. Did he single-handedly convince them to embrace rooftop solar? <laughs> Kidding aside, Jigger, uh, what was your reaction to the proposal? Did you get a sense that this might happen when you came out of your meeting with APS? Well, I, you know, I can't really talk about what they talked about, but I, I think that, you know, I think what's interesting is all of the sort of misunderstanding about all these pieces, and so I'd like to try to figure out if I can sort of put some definition around what they're doing all right shoot um, so i mean what they're doing is putting solar on the roof and they're paying customers 30 bucks a month so if you expect it to save 30 bucks a month with the solar city lease then this basically becomes the same thing um the difference though is that that aps is forcing you to buy power at their current prices from them every month so it's in that way, more like a feed-in tariff where you have to sell all the power to them and then you have to buy it back from them at a price that's there. So there's no hedge value against rising electricity prices. Um, but otherwise, I think it's not so bad. But the other thing that's interesting is that APS's cost of capital, 
not because it's a bad company, but just because of the way it's structured, is they've generally got to make 12% returns on this kind of investment. And as, and as we talked about with Solar City as well as Sun, Sun Edison's um, Yieldco, their cost of capital is far lower than 12%. So this is not actually a great deal for the ratepayers of Arizona unless Arizona Public Service is going after low credit score or other type people. I spoke with Lon Huber, who is the residential utility consumer advocate there, and he said he had a data request in for the revenue requirement to find out, you know, what each, you know, what the real value to the customer is going to be. And and he's probably not going to get that till later this week. And um, and so he was kind of unclear as to what the true value was to decide whether it was good or bad. So the, the jury was a little bit out on that, on what the true cost is going to be. Yeah, there's also an impact to the local installers as well. So they're pretty psyched that they get... A, you know, a handful of installers, like five or six, get a 20 megawatt chunk, which is pretty sizable, could double the business of some of those local companies. But uh, so it might cost around 50 to 75 million. That's what APS put in, put in its proposal. That's like 250 to 375 a watt uh, for the cost to install. And so according to our analysts at GTM Research, in the second quarter, the average residential system price was about $4.22 a watt. So the margins are going to be pretty tight for the residential installers participating in the program here. I doubt it. I mean, that, that 422 number just is always too high, not because GTM analysts are bad, but more because just the the data is so skewed. Generally speaking, NRG is paying folks in New Jersey $3.10 a watt to install all of their systems. You know, um, folks like um, Clean Power Finance and Sungevity and Solar City pay folks roughly the same. Some people are actually installing for 275 a watt. So I think they'll make plenty of money down there. I think the bigger thing is that this is not really unprecedented. I mean, John Bryson tried to do the same thing with Southern California Edison before he left um, with the 250 megawatts that he wanted to rate base of commercial systems with First Solar. And in the end, the way that we dealt with it as a solar industry is we got the California CPUC to actually split that mandate in half. So 125 megawatts SCE would build on their balance sheet, and then the other 125 megawatts became the Fit RAM program. And after the first two or three auctions, the Fit RAM program was coming in at such a lower price than the rate-based amount that Southern California Edison was doing that they've actually forced Southern California Edison to abandon the rest of their 125 megawatts they hadn't built yet and allocated those megawatts to the private sector. But do you really think that the Arizona Corporation Commission, which is pretty sympathetic to APS, would break that program in half? I do, because I think they're also more sympathetic to capitalism. And I Mm. think if you said to the Arizona Corporation Commission that by splitting it in half and letting Solar City, Sungevity, NRG, et cetera, bid on those deals. Now, the economics would be exactly the same to the customer. So in that case, Solar City or NRG would buy the systems on behalf of APS, get paid a utility contract from APS that would be equivalent to what APS is paying itself for its ownership. Um, uh, of assets, and you see whether NRG can do it cheaper than APS can do it internally. Hmm. So, Jigger, the thing is, the motivation of the utility versus the solar company is going to be really different because the utility is going to want to put solar in a very geo-targeted way, and they have the data; they have access to the data that allows them to do that, um, and and make sure that you know it's it's really there to help their system run more efficiently, to help them deal with peaks, and to really maximize what the utility needs, whereas. You know, the solar companies are there to to make the value proposition really for the customer because then they get to profit as well. So it just seems like they're coming at it really differently. And it strikes me that the the third party solar companies might have uh, more difficulties because they don't have the same data that the utilities do. So I think you're right on a broad scale. I mean, that when Solar City sells directly to customers, that it's giving them a different value proposition than what APS is offering here. But just to be clear, I mean, there's six utility companies I've met with now recently. All of them confirmed to me that they don't have that data. So they all claim to have the data, but they actually don't know which feeders are giving them the most problems and which ones would be helped by solar, even though they've been mandated in most cases by the Public Service Commission to get that data. They actually don't have it. Well, APS Um, got a grant from the SunShot Initiative to study exactly that, and we haven't seen the data come out 
And according yeah. to the Sunshot Initiative, the program is still underway, but we haven't seen anything publicly released yet. So APS right. is attempting to get that data. The God knows where it is at this point. And New York State's the same. So they've forced Con Ed, Central Hudson, everyone else to do the same. And they have not um, – But when you talk to those companies, they're like, we've submitted something, but it's actually – we're not clear which areas are actually more helped by solar. But what I'm saying, Catherine, is slightly different. So if APS says that we are going to put solar on your roof, all the power flows in to us, and we're going to pay you a $30 credit – there's an economic model there, right? So APS, let's say, is paying itself 50 bucks a month for that electricity coming off the system, and that's how they're getting to their regulated 12% return. Mm-hmm. If, if SolarCity or NRG owns that system, they might say to APS, actually, we'll do it for $47 instead of the full 50, and that way the ratepayers save $3 extra. And so the model is still the same. Where you know where Solar City or NRG would have to sell the power to APS, APS would then sell it to their customer and give them a thirty dollars credit on their bill. But the question is, who has a lower cost of capital around the ownership of the assets? And in most cases, for solar, that's the private sector, not the utility. Mm. There's another interesting element to this, and that is uh, whether APS might have lower customer acquisition costs because. They perhaps know which customers to target, and they have a, an easier process to reach out to those customers. So that's a factor. Yeah, but again, they can do that as well as letting Solar City own the assets. Right. Right. I mean, they could still do all the marketing and sales on the front end and not have Solar City do it. I just my my point is simply that I think this is a huge breakthrough, and I think that anyone who views this other than positively is not thinking about this correctly. Right, For well, APS to have gone to war with the solar industry and now do this is an about face, and there's no other way to view this as APS putting up the white flag and saying, if you can't beat them, join them. I think that there is here. So I've talked to a handful of people in Arizona about this, um, some customers of APS and some of the solar companies, and they offered a much more cynical take on this and still a speculative take on it, I would uh, admit. But you know, the positive take is that uh, APS is recognizing the value of solar. They're responding to customer demand. They want to make it work for their business model. They're supporting local contractors. There's a case to be made there. And they're potentially reaching out to low-income customers that may not be reached by other solar companies. The cynical version, though, is that APS has found this brilliant legal way to control rooftop solar within the context of the Arizona Corporation Commission, which is supportive of the utility's monopoly status. And like, if the program is approved... APS would be able to rate base the solar, get a guaranteed rate of return. It would give it a leg up on competition, cut them out of a big slice of the residential market. You know, that's stuff that people have talked about. And in some conversations, another element came up, um, and this is sort of the speculative element. Um, you know, people speculate that this is a way for APS to put distributed PV into the scope of what's called the Parker Immunity Doctrine, and that's the antitrust exemption created in the 40s that allows a monopoly to exist if uh, certain regulatory guidelines are implemented by the state. And as soon as it becomes a rate case, it puts the Arizona Corporation Commission squarely at the center. So in the long term, right, it could allow APS to more easily dictate how rooftop solar is incentivized, potentially make it harder for competitors to sue for antitrust violations since they would need to go through the Corporation Commission, which is the judge and jury and sympathetic to APS. And so I, I just kind of boiled down a lot of speculation in this crazy detailed background, but there are some deep concerns about how this sets up APS to shut out competition permanently. And I'm, I'm, you know, I haven't seen anyone really report do anything good on these implications, but it's something that we're going to examine further. And I think that you set this question up, or your statement also begs a question, and that is why did APS go from highly disliking solar and publicly fighting it and putting a lot of money behind fighting it and then immediately pivoting and calling it an exciting opportunity. One could say they're waving the white flag. One could potentially speculate that there's an ulterior motive here. And uh, I don't think that there's an answer to that yet. I think when you do the analysis, which GTM has done with the, um, with the, um, um, the surcharge, the 70 cents per kilowatt surcharge that came out of the last case, 
Arizona is still fully profitable for folks like NRG, Solar City, and others. And I think Arizona saw that when they tried to kill the solar market last time with their case, that they actually failed. And when you look at Sun Edison's Yield Co. and others, the cost of capital for people with decent credit on residential is just going down further. And the cost of installing the solar is going down further. The 422 is a trumped up basis. The actual raw cost of installing solar for residential now is between 275 and 310 a watt, at least from the folks that I know around the country installing. And at those price points, solar is really cost effective. And I think even with Arizona Public Service doing this program, you're going to see a whole bunch of people who decide not to go through this program and to go outside of this program because they want the, the hedge value of solar. But the last thing to think about is that in the state of Iowa, they actually had a case around net metering and whether customers like Sun Edison and others who do PPAs are utilities. And the, the court ruled that they're not utilities. And I think that decision will have a groundbreaking impact in Arizona, Georgia, and lots of other places where utilities are trying to use that loophole to drive out competition. Hey, let me ask you something else, uh, Jigger, about Arizona. Um, how do the consumers feel about this? Because they're the ones that are going to make the decision as to whether they want rooftop solar from APS or from a solar company. So, I mean, do, do the consumers there generally uh, feel good about the utility or are they skeptical? Well, I mean, unfortunately, I don't know the answer. But what I would say is that I think that um, util- the consumers clearly love solar. I mean, that's why the Arizona Corporation Commission was forced to actually provide a, a ruling that was far less damaging to the solar industry than APS wanted. Um, and I think APS is faced with a situation that even though they pay a lot of money every year to get the right commissioners that they like into their chairs at the ACC, those commissioners still have an obligation legally to do right by ratepayers. And I think that, you know, I think that the commissioners – and for as much as you know, they side with APS, they also side with customers. And just to add on to that, in the first paragraph of APS's filing, they say that this is a response to customer demand. So I don't have the exact answer to that question either, but certainly APS mentions that right off the bat, that they're developing this program because customers want it. All right, let's talk about our final topic, Property Assessed Clean Energy. PACE is one of the most promising ways to finance efficiency in solar. Started in 2008 in Berkeley, California, the model allows homeowners to finance energy retrofits through their property taxes over 5, 10, or 20 years. The projects are initially paid for by issuing bonds or through private capital raised by companies administering the program. It's a great concept, but there's one big problem. Because PACE loans are senior to a mortgage, lenders worry that they wouldn't get paid back in case of default or refinancing. In 2010, residential PACE programs ground to a halt after federal regulators told Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the country's two biggest housing lenders, they shouldn't participate in the program because of that risk. Since then, people have been saying residential PACE is dead, but no longer. Over the last 12 months, we've seen a surge in residential programs, mostly in California. Just this week, 17 California counties banded together to create the largest residential PACE program ever. So what has changed? Well, there has been no wave of defaults, as lenders worried initially. And as long as homeowners know they're on the hook to pay back a PACE loan if they move or refinance, the business proposition is still strong. California has also put in some safeguards, and we will talk about those. Jigger, over to you first on this one, because you wanted to talk about PACE at some point. Did you foresee that PACE would see a resurgence like we're seeing now? Not on residential. I mean, I, I have to say that California is really smart here. And what California did was put up roughly $10 million worth of um, indemnity against uh, the FHA or somebody else coming in and actually uh, stepping in and redlining districts like they threatened to do earlier if people used PACE. And, um, and that gave people comfort to actually keep moving forward to originating residential loans. Um, and my you know, conversations recently with major banks that are putting up a billion dollars each is that they are not just excited about California. They're actually saying, you know what, this gives us the confidence to go nationwide and start doing these, uh, these programs in all of the states that have passed 
qualifying pace legislation. So I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty bullish. Yeah. That loan loss reserve fund was created last fall. And FHFA sent a letter recently this spring, I think, to the state of California, to the treasurer's office saying, sorry, that $10 million isn't enough to, uh, to address our concerns. Try better next time. So California, along with that loan loss reserve, said we're going to do a better job of tracking data about PACE loans, and we're going to create minimum requirements for these loans. That created this platform for communities to feel safer, and the housing lenders still have not come in and done what they threatened to do originally. They haven't redlined uh, communities. They, you know, we haven't seen this wave of foreclosure, so they really haven't acted aggressively whatsoever. So finally, with California's safeguards in place and no action from FHFA besides some uh, verbal threats, these communities are starting to feel comfortable again, and that's spreading outside of California as well. However, most of the activity is in California just because they have these safeguards that they set aside. But we'll see if any of the other 31 states with PACE legislation can actually do the same thing, and I think everyone's watching California very closely here. But it's pretty incredible. I don't think I, – I didn't expect residential PACE to resurge like it did. And in the conversations I have with the PACE program administrators, the, the couple of companies that are doing a lot of the transactions, they say that FHFA is still willing to have a dialogue, even though that their public stance hasn't changed. Well, and their job, FHA, FHFA's job, is to protect the security of those Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac mortgages. So they have to take a hard line. And it strikes me that um, the reason that California is able to resuscitate this is through program design, because they have to design it in such a way that really does, as you say, you know, create this reserve, um, make the lien subordinate to the mortgage so that you're you're creating um, a much safer space for this to happen. Um, it's also interesting that uh, last year, the Institute for Market Transformation and um, University of North of um, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill came out with this report that homeowners with energy efficient homes are 32% less likely to default on their mortgages. So I think all of this data that's coming out, you know, once we're we're doing these pace loans will really build out the case that um, that it's a safe it's a safe instrument. Yeah. I actually don't think that this California first program expansion can be understated. This is a huge deal. And this is a policy mechanism that a lot of people have wanted to see spread around the country. It's active in about seven states right now, mostly commercial programs. But this is the killer policy. And it's something that on a local level, everyone can get behind regardless of political affiliation. So I really don't think that this expansion, given the problems we've seen over the last few years, can be understated. I have a question for Jigger on this, too. Um, I worked on this a few years ago for one of the solar companies, and th this issue of PACE and the program design of it has sometimes pitted solar companies on opposite sides of the argument. So depending on whether the PACE loan can be used for the direct purchase of a solar system that the homeowner owns or whether it can purchase the upfront you know, 20-year power purchase agreement or lease through a third-party company, it's really put people on opposite sides of the argument. And so I just wondered, um, Jigger, what you saw um, for the future with solar companies. Yeah, well, I think a lot of that pushback was coming from Sunrun. I think at this point, Sunrun has sort of moved on to other things, and they're not really pushing back. But, you know, but, but from the checks that I've made, um, a couple things are interesting. One is, Stephen, on the California First piece, I agree that that's the catalyst. But honestly, the money folks I'm talking to are telling me that they're not requiring that in any of the other states that they're working in. What do you um, mean they're not requiring it? Requiring they're not re what? requiring this loan loss reserve oh, or yeah. any of that stuff in the other states. And so I think that the loan loss reserve piece was critical to getting people off their butts um, and getting you know California moving again last year. But I think that you know folks have moved past that and actually just believe FHFA is full of crap and is not going to like – is more bark than bite. I think that – Catherine, to your point, what's interesting is um, the folks that, that are doing these loans, um, a lot of the money that's going out right now really is for solar and not for energy efficiency, which is interesting. And the I've, money is being used for prepaid leases. I've actually heard it's about 50-50. When I talk Which to is amazing. DeVries, yeah. I mean, to suggest for a moment that the solar industry would hijack something the energy efficiency th industry thought would actually finally save their asses is pretty interesting. <laughs> well, now that the solar industry is moving beyond 
PPAs and leases, I think pace looks more attractive to them. They do. I mean, so so Catherine, the, the interesting thing about the prepaid leases piece is that the the county commissioners and others prefer the lease right now to the loan because they don't trust the homeowner. So the problem with the homeowner is if the homeowner, for instance, um, takes a loan out for the entire amount for the solar, but then gets a 30% tax credit, um, they may not use that money to buy down the PACE loan, which leaves the PACE payments artificially high for the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. So you could see an arbitrage, right? You put a solar system in, you get your 30% you get your thirty tax credit back from the federal government, you immediately sell your house, you take your 30% tax credit and go you know, to the next house that you're moving to, and you stick the next guy with the bill. But that yeah. doesn't happen with a prepaid lease. Because a prepaid lease, there's a tax investor doing the tax credits, and you're really only financing the cash flows. So what a lot of folks are trying to figure out how to do, but they haven't done yet that I've seen, is getting people who do full loans with PACE to actually force them to take the 30% tax credit they get when they get it and buy down the PACE loan. So that way you don't have this moral hazard problem. There's always some way to game the system, <laughs> no matter how good it looks on paper. That's right. All right. Well... Time to uh, end the show, and we'll tell our listeners something they don't know. Uh, let's see. Who am I going to start with? Catherine, we'll go over to you. Yeah. Uh, so I Skyped with a former colleague yesterday who lives in Spain and has worked in renewables for a long time. And just to kind of get a sense of, so what's going on over there? And he said, you know, of course, the economy uh, is just decimated the job situation over there. But he said one of the big things that's happened is that the utilities have really taken over um, the system again and and just have killed renewables, especially in Spain, but elsewhere as well. And what he said is that everybody's eyes are on the United States, that the U.S. is now seen as the leader in renewables and especially in sort of policy development and figuring out um, new constructs for financing, that he said that whereas you know a few years ago, a very few years ago, Europe was kind of held up as in the example that right now everybody's looking to the U.S. The second mover USA. advantage. USA. USA. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you've been arguing all along, Jigger, that the U.S. would come up and clean everybody's clock because they'd have the second mover advantage. Well, and they didn't overpay. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the big problem with Spain, Italy, and Germany is that everyone is holding them up as failures, not successes, because they overpaid for renewables. And, you know, I think that, you know, California didn't. We only installed, I don't know, about 1,000 megawatts of stuff um, while solar prices were high, and we've done a lot since then. All right, Jigger, you got any interesting stories? So I just wanted to follow up on our story from last week around the um, – the Brookings Institution piece. Emery Lovins has, as only Emery can do, has published a really amazing rebuttal to the crap that was coming out of the mouth of uh, of Brookings and uh, published it in Forbes. And it's really amazing. And it's just classic Emery. And, you know, some of the really interesting things that he says is, you know, the solar power is actually now scaling faster than cell phones, which I thought was amazing. Um, and he ends the piece with sometimes a concept is baffling, not because it is profound, but because it's wrong. And he quotes <laughs> E.O. Wilson, just awesome. And so kudos to Emery. He always like does a great job with that. And I'm just really happy to see that. Yeah, well, he's working on a piece for GTM as well, an adaptation of that Forbes article for us. And I don't even think I told you guys this. Amory will be on the show in the last week of August. Yes. Look at that. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some other interesting stuff that RMI is working on. And we got so much response to the last podcast. We figured we'd revisit it a little bit with Amory and try to flesh it out a little bit more. I think that's great. Oh, by the way, Catherine, you know, on Germany and, and Italy, for the first half of this year, Germany was 25.8% renewable and Italy was 38.6% renewable. All right, well, I've got an interesting stat. The University of Michigan just released a survey about how consumers think about energy in the U.S., and they were looking at like sensitivity to electricity and fuel prices and concerns about reliability. And there was one finding that really stood out for me, and that is that consumers said that they worried about the environment more than affordability and reliability. 
Like, I did not expect that. When asked what their biggest concerns were, about 65% said the environment was at the top. And uh, again, very surprising to me because environmental issues typically pull at the bottom of priorities when people are given a long list. Not surprisingly, however, it was those who identified themselves as knowledgeable about energy issues that were more worried about the environmental impact of their consumption. So there it is. Looks like we need more people listening to the energy gang. And that's all for this week's podcast. Thank you to all of our energy aware listeners out there. We love hearing from you. If you want to email us with comments, concerns, questions, story ideas, shoot a note to me. It's Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. I'll be sure to uh, send that over to Jigger and Catherine as well. For links to the stories we discussed, head on over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast for the show notes. And while you're there, make sure to send that link out to your social networks and spread the word. Don't forget about our live show on September 22nd in New York City at WNYC's Green Room. We will have a link to that as well in the show notes. Thanks to our sponsor, eGage Systems, as well. And, of course, final thanks to my co-hosts. Catherine, I faked you out at the end of the show last time, but you are now truly heading out on vacation. Glad you'll still be with us from the Adirondacks. Yep, absolutely. Travel safe. Jigger, have an awesome week. And I understand that you're turning 40 soon. I am. It's the big 4 August 30th. Oh, so it's. I thought it was sooner than that. I'll wish you yeah, a happy birthday. Yeah, we're having a party sooner than that, but yes. Excellent. And you know what I just realized? It's our 50th show. <gasps> Look cool. at that. Happy 50th. And we continue to get more listeners every week, so we're doing something right, I suppose. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I am Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.